Welcome to another episode of Ready Teacher One. I'm Adam Mangana. And I'm Ryan McLaughlin. And joining us tonight are the three co-founders of Sora Schools. We've got Garrett Smiley, we've got Indra Sofian, and we've got Wesley Samples with us tonight. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. We are so thrilled to have you on the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. Would you guys mind just telling us a little bit about yourselves and, and how you guys met and came to found a school together? Yeah, so we actually all went to Georgia Tech together. Um, we met doing a bunch of different activities, all, all the way from education to startup uh, incubators. But by working together, we, we realized we had this common shared passion of education. And we just decided, you know, let's, to make a long story short, we decided, okay, let's, you know, screw it. We don't need to chase these careers working at these small tech companies or consultancies. Our, our passion is solving these problems, plugging in education, these systemic issues. So let's do something crazy and start a school around these progressive ideals, which we may dive into in a bit. So, um, yeah, we're just some three crazy young guys who decided to try this whole school thing. That's so awesome. Um, yeah, say a little bit more about uh, the progressive ideals that you guys have founded the school around. I know that, you know, Adam and I have talked offline a lot about how exciting the vision that Source Schools has is, but I would love for our audience to just hear from you guys, you know, about that vision and about what it is that makes the DNA of Source Schools tick. Yeah, so there are many things that we believe in, but from a high level, it's we believe that especially the online environment this is especially relevant to your listeners where we believe what we can do with an online environment we can really live up to some of the progressive ideals that uh, you know in many cases were written 100 150 years ago but technology makes them practical today this you know web 2.0 web 3.0 revolution what the modern computer gives us every student can have an individualized learning plan every student can have you know, huge amounts of data, note-taking, just passively accumulated about them so we can make intelligent interventions and decisions about their, their academics. So um, we can discuss the nuances of, of our pedagogy and what we, what we believe, but what's relevant to your listeners particularly is this um, Sora or something like Sora is really only possible in the last handful of years because of these advances in technology and what it enables us to do with personalized education. Guys, when you think about uh, the impact of uh, our current context and the pandemic, what elements of school do you think have completely jumped the shark and will never return? I think from like a parent perspective, um, at least, because so many students were at home doing this whole Zoom school thing that I feel like most of America and most of the world experienced, um, they parents are a little bit more keen on what's going on in the classroom and are able to make more like informed decisions about their child's education that they didn't feel like they had to make before but it's kind of a wake-up call for a lot of families around the u.s of you know, the quality of the education that the students are receiving so um we've we've kind of seen that on the admissions front like you know hey like here's here's where i thought we were like here's here's what i'd like to see for my child and, you know maybe there's a way to customize it for your program um I think we've, I mean, even like if you look at like higher ed beyond high school, I think we've, we've kind of determined like, you know, maybe this is the breakthrough for like multiple paths out of high school, like in the, the weights on those because, you know, coming into the pandemic, it's, uh, or before the pandemic, it's, you know, that college is kind of like that primary way out of high school. It's like the most prestigious way, but we've found that 
Um, there's ways to do that online now. There's different programs that students are engaging with. Um, we've had to build those over the past year in a lot of cases. And so that's, that's kind of another thing that we think will continue to go in that direction. And like, what's the actual value of like a college degree, um, you know, aside from being on the campus and in the network of students that you're around. Um, what have you guys seen? Go ahead, Andrew. I think what's also important to note that you know, in in a post in a post COVID world, so to speak, it's still technically going on. But in a in a post pandemic world, I think parents are a lot more aware of the optionality that they wield when it comes to their children's education. I think most people grow up thinking that oh, you know, I have you know, <laughs> honestly, most people frankly speaking are even born oftentimes with their parents knowing that they moved there or lived there because their zip code influences where they go to school and like it's like oh i the only option i have is where what's next to me or what's zoned for me um and what's around me but i think what the pandemic has shown is that you know and with the implications of what Wesley just mentioned, that knowing basically what goes on in the classroom, what students are actually learning, that parents are now aware that, oh, like this whole virtual school thing, like not just like what my public school does for distance learning, but other virtual schools are a thing. Homeschooling is a thing. Like, frankly speaking, considering the consideration of even like just brick and mortar private schools are also a thing um, that now I think most more parents are now aware of that they have the power, it, you know, if, if it came down to it to potentially switch out of their like existing school option. And I think that in itself gives parents more leverage, especially when it comes to things like, you know, in trying to institute change, you know, within their existing schools, whether it's curriculums or programs or support programs. Um, and I think that will also potentially, I'll say, maybe may slightly wishful, give uh, districts and schools a bit more pause when it comes to, you know, potentially not listening to the wishes of the parents that they serve and the families that they serve. That's tremendous. On uh, the topic of the pandemic, you know, one of the things that we have seen has been the rise of uh, Zoom fatigue, right? Uh, Stanford just issued a study um, not that long ago saying like, hey guys, you know, Zoom fatigue is a real thing. And I think what's really interesting about what you guys have done at Sora, and I've, I've told a bunch of people about this, is it's most student interactions are actually taking place on Discord, um, which I think is brilliant. And everyone that I've told has been like, wait, why didn't I think of that? Why am I not doing Discord? Um, so uh, tell me a little bit about, you know, whose idea that was, how that came about. Um, for those of our listeners who aren't maybe as familiar with Discord, what are the advantages there? Um, you know, what is the strength there as opposed to Zoom call? Um, tell us about the use of Discord with student interactions. So I mean, you got to think of us as like the, the young guys who are from a startup world. We started our school actually in Slack. Um, but okay. we were doing a lot of platform switching. We wanted something that was a little bit more like dynamic. People could hop in and out of conversations. So like Discord, um, for those of you who don't know, have um, a voice channel option. So like right next to the text channels, there's voice channels where students can just jump in and have a conversation with each other. And we, we thought that that would, um, you know, help students create more organic uh, collaboration and conversation. And that's what we've noticed. Um, so like moving to a Discord platform, um, we, we did that about a year in roughly, like at, at right at the end of our first year. Um, there's really no looking back. 
because that's enabled us to do a lot of different um, like on the fly synchronous events that we weren't able to do in a Slack paradigm by posting a Zoom link. Even that like little bit of friction um, has caused students to you know delay an interaction or something like that. Yeah, compared I think one of the exciting things about using a platform like Discord is that, and it's it's relatively small, you know, in ter you know, technically speaking, you know, the idea of, you know, having like voice channels that students can sort of jump into that you can see who's in the voice channel and who's in where, like where students are. But sp spatially, I think what it does for students, it allows them to feel more presence, if you will, um, with, yeah. uh, with the rest of the students and faculty in the community. And I think in a virtual environment, it's especially important because for the most part, you don't really have context of, oh, what are other people doing? Where are they meet, where are they meeting? Like, what are they, you know, what else, you know, where, where is everyone else? Um, but when you log into Sora and you, uh, you're on the discord, you can see like, oh, like it's house stand-up time. Literally all these voice channels are just like all these students meeting uh, in the mornings. And it's like, that's pretty powerful because it goes like, oh, I'm, I'm part of something. It's not just me isolated at home, just screaming into the void. Like I can feel the presence of others. And that's, I think, pretty powerful. And I think educators can think of it kind of like those, those casual second or third spaces in a school environment, you know, the front steps of the school or the green space out back or on the bleachers, the places kids go casually between, you know, classes or during lunch where they can chat. That's really what we lose when we move to an online environment. And we have to be intentional about injecting that back into the school experience. And that's something Discord can do. So, you, you, you know, Garrett, you really raise an interesting uh, idea, which is that, you know, online school kind of started from this place of being very pragmatic, <clears throat> very transactional. And one of the innovations that you've brought uh, to the party is this idea of relational ex experience, that, that it's not just about academic press, but it's about care and forming kind of a common courtesy of connection. Uh, what are ways that you guys have thought about that differently than, than, than uh, some of your other online counterparts or, or some of your other brick and mortar counterparts uh, beyond just the discord? How, how else have you intentionally built community? I think you all are the perfect people to talk to about this because you understand that, yes, these schools, these online schools that started 10, 15 years ago, they did not have the ability to really build a great online community. Right. And so they're still operating from this mindset of, okay, there's an inherent trade off to online school. But us and you all, you're the perfect people to talk to about this. You understand that the, the quality of online interaction, you know, the, the, the bandwidth of interaction, some people might say, is constantly increasing online. And we're at a point where even just this conversation we're having on Zoom right now is so much better than what was possible even five years ago. So, what I like to push back on to a lot of people, who bring up this point um, adjacent to your point, not quite this point exactly, but who say, you know, how is socialization going to happen? How are they going to make friends? Uh, we have to think that socialization, quote unquote, some people just dislike that word, but that was almost entirely a mistake or it is still a mistake in the traditional classroom. It, teachers would prefer it didn't happen, right? Where socialization happens is when you talk to your friend in the back of the classroom or in the five minute passing period, you bump into your friend or if you have the same lunch period or sports, none of these things are part of the academic experience itself. And most schools try to minimize it, right? So when we're looking at how to build a school and we're starting online, um, 
if we're intentional about these things, we can go above and beyond even what an in-person experience can offer. So a few more like tactical things that we've done to support our online community is we have a house system. Um, this is students are divided when they come into SOAR, they're divided into their own house, um, kind of like Harry Potter's little sorting ceremony uh, where they get placed in their house. And, um, each house has their own. to put on them to sort them. We, so we have a Discord bot called Sorting Hat. Nice. <laughs> We've done a whole thing. It would ask them questions and stuff like that. It was, it was fun. Um, I promise I didn't know that when I asked that question. <laughs> no, it was, we made a big thing about it last fall. We'll do it again this fall. But it's um, awesome. Yeah, so we, so students meet um, first with their, like, their house, like another group of students um, every day. That's their stand-up and to end off the day and check point they're uh, meeting with this house again to reflect on the progress that they made over the day talk over um, different like projects that they're working on and just really be there as a support system for one another um, they play a lot of games in checkpoint there's a lot of just like house v house rivalries and competitions and stuff like that going on all the time and this is kind of the the thread that we've built throughout our community it's like you know your your faction your house um, is something that you're representing in all of the experiences that you have at Sora. and so that's been a big piece um, we've also played with having like an online like spirit week of sorts where um, we had students doing like a gaming tournament. There were there was like an Iron Chef competition, um, lots of stuff like that. And so the and like the last piece of this, and this is something that we're still developing, uh, which I think y'all might be interested in as well, is you know we don't have a football team, but what we can do is build the best esports team possible. Um, and, and so that's something just that's kind of in development. Once we reach a certain student count, we can actually start um, you know rolling out into different games and different sports and joining different competitions. And that's something that also I think the pandemic has accelerated these esports leagues for students. And so, yep, yeah, Garrett knew it was going to be, <laughs> and even more so than I think the social infrastructure. That, bring, that binds Sora together, even the learning experiences themselves at Sora when students attend learning expeditions held by uh, our learning experts, you know, when they, in all the other sessions that uh, Wesley and Garrett have uh, previously mentioned, like even those are intentionally designed to be social, engaging and collaborative. You know, I, I'm sometimes briefly reminded um, by uh, my conversations with prospective parents that that's, you know, the idea that a class, so to speak, or an, you know, a, a synchronous session, if you will, um, between a teacher and students is not always a, at least in a traditional system, is not always collaborative um, or uh, social in nature. I think one thing stuck out to me uh, about a month ago when someone attended one of our virtual open houses uh, is when a prospective parent remarked that, oh, uh, it's so cool, like that students uh, are allowed to speak in class. <laughs> um, or uh, I think when a student mentioned like, oh, I really like that the teacher listens to the students' opinions. And I just kept thinking, well, that's a pretty, I think that's a pretty low bar. <laughs> but okay, I'm glad you're excited by this. <laughs> and just kind of following that point, I'd say about half of our expeditions are just developed by students approaching our teachers with like, hey, here's a cool idea that we could do. And I'm interested in this topic. And the teacher's like, great partner with me on this, we're going to build this together. Um, and students actually take an active part of leading and um, supporting learning experience. And so that's, yeah, super collaborative community all around. As, as, the, we, think of, as we think about uh, like the anatomy of uh, an online school experience, and we think about the cadence between what is synchronous and what is asynchronous, you guys have had, you know, some time to, to collect some data and think um, very deeply about 
what that cadence feels like um, and how individualized that is. What insights have you gained about synchronous versus asynchronous? Um, and where do you see this, uh, the evolution of this going? Do you think that we might buy a Sora class on Amazon for $39.99 in about seven years? So this kind of goes back to the whole like Web3 conversation where it's like all the content's online. We're building a community around that content to support students learning. And so um, we probably are a little bit more synchronous than other online schools in that like to support that. And so we've actually been running experiments recently on co-working sessions where students can come together on um, a, a Discord channel and just kind of play some music and work on stuff together. Um, and so like, there's always gonna be that piece where it's like, you know, being around like the whole parallel play aspect, but um, yeah. I, I think back to, to provide, or to put this in the context of a larger conversation happening in the workplace, I like to think of one of our advisor, Anne Duane's um, comment, perhaps she stole it from somewhere else, but she says, if you're measuring seat time, you're measuring the wrong end of the student. And it's very true because many times, much like in remote work, and we were early adopters of the remote work thing too, there's this incentive to look busy, right? Like sitting in a classroom, synchronous time, make sure you're looking at the screen and it's, they're not measuring output. They're not measuring any sort of cell or improvement, right? Um, so all the things people are discussing now about the productivity gains and the mental health benefits of, you know, having a little bit of space and, and autonomy in the workplace, that argument applies to, to kids as well. That's tremendous. Um, you know, one of the first interactions that I had with a SOAR student, and uh, full disclosure for our listeners, I've uh, been working for you guys a little bit part-time, um, tutoring some math on the side, and I'm getting ready to come on with you guys full-time. So, uh, But one of the first interactions that I had with a SOAR student, I asked the student, uh, you know, what sort of things are you interested in? What sort of things are you passionate about? And she said to me, artificial intelligence. In fact, I just got done attending a lecture earlier today about the overlap between the progress of artificial intelligence as an emerging technology and Buddhist philosophy of mind. And I was just like, oh my goodness, that's fascinating. I'm a little jealous. I wish I'd got to go to that lecture. Um, and immediately, you know, as I'm sitting there interacting with the student, my thought was, there are so few schools out there that would even try to meet the students' needs. Um, so few schools out there that would try to give her the agency to pursue that kind of interest, right? And that kind of passion. Um, and one of the things that I immediately fell in love with about Sora is, yeah, you know what, this, this student had the chance to take a time out in the middle of her day and, and pursue that interest. Um, tell me how you guys go about attracting those students whose, you know, intellectual curiosities just aren't being engaged in more traditional schools online or in brick and mortar, right? Yeah, I think one of the first questions that we usually ask uh, when we start, when the admissions team speaks to a prospective family that, you know, they could have just heard about Sora, you know, right? Like that's the first time they heard about Sora is the conversation that we're basically about to have, or they've you know done a lot of research and heard about it from a friend or something like that. One of the first questions we usually ask is like, so tell me about your student. Like, tell me about their interests. Like, what's their previous schooling like? What what do they like? You know, what's their favorite subject? Just learning as much as we can about the student, because really, like in terms of admissions, what we care about is if Sora will be 
a learning environment in which they'll be successful. And, you know, as far as like how we sort of, you know, look for students and, uh, you know, what we usually look for in them and how we sort of, you know, get to the point where you're having a conversation about, you know, artificial intelligence with, uh, you know, some high schooler, basically. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things, I, I would say like one of the common things that we run into with, uh, I would say, a sort of prototypical sort of student is someone who's traditionally not been served well in the traditional school system. Oftentimes they usually have some sort of deep interest in a topic. It could be something as sort of broadly broad as like art, or it could be something as niche and specific as like, I don't know. Um, but uh, the preservation of our uh, oceans in the Atlantic ocean or something <laughs> and the marine biology in that ecosystem. That's know, a really good like oddly specific something something oddly specific. Uh, so it, it, there's a range, but generally speaking, they do have these types of interests, academic or non-academic. Like that, clearly, their existing schooling, public schooling, homeschooling, private schooling, what have you, just isn't serving. Right. And that usually is what tends to attract them to Sora. Is that hey, like I can actually do these things that I'm really interested in at Sora, still learn all the other important stuff, uh, and also just generally be a part of a community of other people, kind of like me. You guys, uh, you know, talk on your website a lot about project-based learning. Is um, the drive behind project-based learning the belief that that pedagogy is particularly well suited to meet the kinds of needs that we're talking about for students? That it, it gives them the opportunity to pursue those uh, interests, both general and very niche, like you said, Indra. Yeah, exactly. So we, I don't think we've used this terminology in a while, but we love for like we, we work with students to fall in love with like interesting questions that we want to answer. And usually the, the format for that is to build a project around it or do an investigation or talk to a mentor and just kind of, so all of those are kind of considered projects in our model. Um, I think a lot of schools who do project-based are um, a little bit more arts and crafty and we try to stay away from that side of things um, and help students build real world projects. Um, one way that this manifests in the store program is through our tracks program. And so once students have an idea of like a certain career path that they, are interested in exploring, they join a track. And so right now we have a design track, an engineering track, both for software and hardware, and a health sciences track. And students can jump into one of those and actually complete a project with a track advisor who has industry expertise in that field um, and can guide the student along um, to follow their inquiry. And so that's, that's kind of how we approach PBL. Um, in a humanities expedition, we may do something Socratic. In a STEM expedition, we may be doing PBL, um, we could switch that up. And so it's just kind of a one like main thing that we do here at Sora, but there's other lenses that we take as well, or approaches that we take. And I think even more straightforward than that, it's just a better pedagogy of, you know, artifact creation is so important as, as people are learning people. Well, I guess some disagree, but knowledge is constructed, right? That's, you have to go from your own personal point A to a point B. And the only way you can do that is by creating something. It's the only way you can fill the gaps and passive learning is not, isn't really an option if we're looking for any, any sort of resilient knowledge. Um, yeah. So you were, you're getting at um, something that I see is going to be a really interesting challenge going forward. Um, first and foremost, I have to commend you for uh, your sense of talent, bringing Ryan on. I mean, you guys are really a great spot of talent, but um, it gets at this supply side question. They're going to be, there's probably going to be a teacher shortage and there's probably going to be uh, a number of folks running towards online schools because 
the demands of the brick and mortar teacher experience have gotten um, imbalanced to say it as nicely as I possibly can say. Um, And so I'm really curious, what do you know to be true about that uh, part of the work, finding talent that our brick and mortar friends aren't seeing yet? What, what insights have you had? What advantages, what durable competitive advantages have you begun to position yourself around in terms of the acquisition of talent as you think about uh, the next three years that your brick and mortar counterparts have not figured out yet? Perhaps we have to ask Ryan, but I'll start by saying, <laughs> I think you attract you know, supremely talented people like Ryan by just giving them freedom and flexibility because people like Ryan, sorry, you're the, you're the example now, right? That's right. <laughs> kind of like I'm not in the room. <laughs> you're a great one, but um, people like Ryan. Who've started world famous podcasts, you mean? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the teachers are really smart people, right? They have their own interests. And that's where you believe in, you know, the Dewey philosophy, I suppose you could say of teachers need to bring their whole selves into the classroom and we need to create curriculum around their interests too. Um, interest is palpable. Students can feel it. What we shouldn't do is just standardize and beat the interest out of school. Because ultimately, we believe one of the primary purposes of education in the 21st century is inspiration. Right? We want to inspire people to learn. Like that St. Augsbury quote, I won't quote it now, but it's like we need to inspire people to, to explore. Right? If they're actually interested in learning something, information is all over the internet. They can go find it. Right? Yeah, I think uh, I think back to a quote from one of our earliest faculty members that joined the Sora team, uh, where she said um, when she first saw the uh, job listing for uh, the position at Sora, um, she said, I thought it was a scam because it didn't seem possible. Um, <laughs> you get the idea that you give, you know, fa- teachers, faculty, you give them flexibility, uh, the ability to work uh, remotely <laughs> as well, and giving them flexibility in their scheduling too. Um, the ability to actually interact with students uh, beyond just, you know, a rote sort of, you know, dictation of, you know, that to that lesson, that particular lesson that they were assigned to give that day. Um, just giving them all this sort of flexibility and basically power to, you know, basically help students and, you know, help them learn and make, <laughs> make learning interesting and fun to them uh, in a way, in the way that the teacher or the faculty member knows how to, like that in itself is pretty powerful. And that's, you know, well, frankly, I, I guess similar back to, back to my uh, earlier comment, sometimes it doesn't seem like that big of an innovation because I'm like, it's relatively, yeah, it, it seems it relatively feels- simple to me, <laughs> but uh, it's, yeah. And I, I guess I'll, I'll play devil's advocate here, but like, I, you know, not all teachers work well in this paradigm. I mean, it's, you know, we use first names. We, our students are um, a part of the hiring process and no kind of screen for engagement and um, everything like that because we have all of our applicants um, do a demo lesson with our students and they give us feedback on that person so and their lesson so it's it's a very collaborative experience between teacher and student um, so we're, we've kind of leveled that out a little bit where you know sometimes the teachers are the students and sometimes the students are the teachers in certain cases and sometimes the teacher will create a question and the students will follow them on it sometimes it will go the other direction and so um, yeah, but I think for the for the people who are looking for this, um, there, there's a lot of them out there, and um, yeah, we look forward to, to talking to you. Wesley, this is I a, know that. Uh, oh, a real quick, Wesley, this is an interesting point that you raised because um, the the piece about first names and the piece about students involved in the hiring 
is not a function of you being an online school, but more of a function of you being a progressive school, right? And so right. what's interesting about this, as I look at um, Sora as a, as a business model, you know, what was so radical about Dewey and Francis Parker 120 years ago was that they were able to scale education in a way that the classical folks could not at the time. The life of the mind folks were really just catering to the elite in the country. And Francis Parker and Dewey said, hey, guys, we're going to be super pragmatic. We're going to teach and prepare folks for the factory, and we can do it at scale, and it works well, and we'll ramp this thing up. And, and it tied with this industrial revolution. So that was a, an innovation. When we look at you know, your current model, you have a very small group of students that you're serving. And so I'm curious, you know, the, 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 uh, the limits of the internet, you know, 1990, we had 4 million people, we now have 4 billion people. There have to be some plans and some thoughts around scaling. And so I'm very curious as you think about this idea of this is not for everyone. It's got to be for enough people to keep your investors and others, and, and, and I don't mean investors just in a monetary sense, but your families and everyone who is invested in the community interested in growth. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the idea of scaling Sora? So from a model perspective, um, just student experience. So I'll back up. Sora can divide it into separate schools. And so each school could be just north of 100, 120 students. And that's, that's the students' community that they're going to be involved with um, during their time at Sora. So still a relatively small community. We have plenty of faculty in that community. Um, and they're the ones who are, have a strong relationship with the students um, and are on them, or basically working with them on their learning journeys. Um, I guess, Garrett, do you want to talk about just like long-term like growth and scale and like how this, how this all kind of fits together? Sure, but I think an interesting point for us to bring up first is a, a common, you know, line that's delivered by, by educators of yesteryear is that you can't have infinitely differentiated curriculum. Like you have to, you have to draw a line in the sand. You have to track students um, to different experiences, but you can't offer everything. That's just not a thing you can do. But we really disagree with that. Like that's the power of technology and um for the listeners who are not aware, how Sora does credit, for example, every student has hundreds and hundreds of unique uh, data points, we call them competencies and concepts, that they have to demonstrate mastery over during their um, high school experience. But the order in which they learn those and the level of, in which they explore those is different for every single student. So I, I did a calculation recently that we have more um, possible graduation past than atoms in the known universe. So like that, that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, and that's the power of technology. And um, similarly, that's what technology can do to replace the need for a ton of administrators. So teach, you know, administrators are useful and they do lots of fun things, but technology can empower the educator to do a lot of those things by, by themselves. Um, so if we're just talking what makes Sora inherently scalable, that's how we view the relationship between the educator and the software we're building to, to empower them. Um, we, can, we can then replicate this, this software and we can replicate um, these schools like Wesley said. Is then it just becomes about uh, identifying extremely high quality faculty, training them, and um, throwing a community together. And of course, not that you know, flippantly, but that's really what the problem becomes. That's tremendous. So it sounds like, you know, um, 
we talk a lot on this podcast about uh, the fear that some teachers have about technology, replacing teachers, reducing the need for as many teachers. But it sounds like maybe what you're saying is that it's not that we're going to need fewer teachers, it's that we're going to need fewer assistant principals. And uh, I, I don't know too many people who are going to be super upset about that. But uh, is, is that kind of where you're driving with that? <laughs> Well, I have seen their principal unions now, so hopefully they don't get mad at me, but the teachers are decidedly safe. <laughs> teachers are the needed, yeah. Yeah. the very needed part of this equation. That's tremendous. This is really interesting. And um, so, so for our folks who are more on the tech, uh, the tech side of this conversation, what I'm hearing from you, Garrett, is that Sora not only is attempting to dematerialize the school building, but it is also wanting to decentralize education. And so the central offices are what are being disrupted in this particular model. And so, you know, it makes me think, well, what are central offices helpful for? They're typically helpful for compliance and they're typically helpful for quality assurance. And so as we think about those folks who are um, excited about compliance and quality assurance, <laughs> and to Ryan's point, nobody wants, nobody's, no, <laughs> you know, I, I, you, I feel like you've positioned the assistant principals as like Fredo from the uh, Godfather. I'm smart too, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like, you know, so for those compliance officers and those, uh, and those folks who are quality assurance officers that are shivering in their boots, um, how do you guys address quality and compliance, if, if that's important at all? So each school has a director over it, um, first of all. So that, I guess that's your assistant principal um, under a, a head of school. Um, we also have a curriculum team that works with all of our experts to be able to do QA on all of their expeditions and the content that they're putting out. Right now, what we're going to start piloting is expert portfolios, if you will. And so, you know, taking the top, you know, 15, 20 learning expeditions, learning experiences that they've created and working with them over time to be able to, you know, have a great version one, version two, version three, um, and really master um, like 15 uh, expeditions that they can replicate in the community. And so we're, we're thinking about it from like an HQ side of things. Like we're thinking about a lot of support for our faculty, um, helping them be able to find different resources and just being that like kind of one-stop shop for everything that they need on the design side of things um, in addition. Let's, yeah. let's talk about um, what those compliance officers, what mechanisms, what levers they have to pull usually to do their job. And it's usually things like making sure paperwork gets filled out properly, making sure there, you know, there's proper oversight. It's these these extremely painful processes for everyone involved. No one likes paperwork, right? And these are the things by being an online native school we can do automatically, right? You don't have to have fill out a piece of paperwork that said, oh, I did an intervention with this student about their bad homework grade for 15 minutes because when you're in online school, those bits, you know, online interactions are tracked automatically. Our software knows you discussed for 15 minutes with this student about their homework. It knows, um, it knows these things, right? It's almost like just by being in an online environment and building on top of software, paperwork doesn't really it's at least significantly reduced, right? Well, um, Garrett, this is really great because the biggest thing that, that the public school sector is interested in is to make sure that the standards that this government has set up 
are aligned, right? That, that when you say that you are teaching design, that this particular skill is taught in this particular fashion and somebody has to account for that, right? That, that now what has made you all so brilliant is not only the software that is infinitely scalable, but the marriage of that to thinking about positioning kids with industry experts, right? So, so you have this, these tracks that marry with this, that kind of, that really, to me, disrupts the need for a standards alignment because it basically says, guys, we don't need to worry about, the best measure isn't some kind of a $2 million standardized test that you bought. The best measure is, are these kids able to go pro out of high school? Can they actually understand the design process? Can they engineer something? Can they build something? This is what makes you all just incredibly a brilliant idea. And I think maybe an existential threat to the status quo. Yeah, application over test scores all day. Yep. <laughs> and I'm sorry to interrupt. You got me passionate, Garrett. I got excited. <laughs> well, and Adam, you and I have talked a lot about, uh, you know, just as, as the cost of college continues to skyrocket and as the uh, – the ROI on that seems to go down continuously, right? There's there's a huge attraction to the idea that uh, a kid might be able to come out of high school and go pro, right? So that's got to be um, that's got to be a tremendously attractive thing to forward-thinking parents that are looking at this and saying, "Hey, you know, rather than dropping 70, 80 grand a year now on tuition, room, and board at uh, Selective College XYZ." Um, that maybe gets my kid a, a lucrative job at the end of four years, maybe not. Um, maybe they'll still have to go on and do a master's degree or whatever. Um, you know, upskilling a kid while they're still 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, and then being able to say like, hey, listen, there are all these industries now that, uh, that don't require the sheepskin anymore. I'm sure, I mean, I'd love to hear your experiences with that, but I'm sure there are a lot of forward-thinking parents that are like, yes, give me more of that. I'll also preface this by saying at the end of the day, even if you are looking for a college route, SOAR education does provide you that. Um, and colleges, when they look at our transcripts, see like, oh, wow, this student has all these different areas. Maybe they've had an internship. Like this is, we're, we're excited about this student because we know the path that they're on and where they want to go. That said, I think Garrett, you have some thoughts on this. I, I want to hear, Indra, do you have thoughts about this? <laughs> yeah. I think one of the uh, things that excites a lot of prospective parents is sort of our attitude towards outcomes and what that looks like for uh, their, uh, their kids. Because we have parents at Sora that enroll their students knowing that, ah, oh, like college is probably on the path for them. And like, that's probably what they want, hopefully. Um, and usually what the parents want. Um, we also have parents at Sora that are, say, like, not sure, like exactly, like, ah, you know, my, my kid, you know, my son, he might do the college thing he might not that's it's kind of up to me um, and then you have some parents that are like yeah he'll probably not do the college thing like he'll go to trade school because he's really into like building stuff with his hands and like you know hands on, doing hands-on work um or he you know or she wants to you know go to you know straight uh, straight into industry like and get her first job potentially out of high school and what's exciting to a lot of prospective parents is that you know we frankly speaking don't push students towards any one path or another like we say like we want to help students get to where they want to be uh, not necessarily just on a predestined path um, that we've set for everyone that's tremendous 
I think um, what you said, Ryan, since you mentioned, you know, sheepskin effect, I think all that we need to do this, you know, I'll, I'll be super nerdy and say the flippening of like, <laughs> of college versus other pathways, right? This is going to happen as soon as there's, you know, narrative violation, as soon as there's another explanation for why a student would opt out of college. But right now that's starting to happen. Um, like you said, where the ROI is going down and the cost, or that's the same thing, but the cost is going up, quality is going down. Uh, as soon as people can see the, the jobs that everyone wants isn't under some, you know, behind some velvet rope, that's not really the case anymore. As soon as we can show there might be a reason why an extremely talented student wouldn't go to college. That's becoming a reality. But as soon as that's even a question in an employer or even your, you know, your grandparents' mind that there are other valid pathways for talented, talented kids, um, that's when the game's going to change. So we're trying to help um, families. And this is something we're going to be investing a lot of time in over the next couple of years, creating those pathways, the, you know, the boot camp programs, the gap year programs coming up. These, these, it's not just be about becoming a college freshman the next year and blowing a bunch of money, like you said, Ryan. <laughs> don't don't want to miss out on one quick question. Uh, and again, Garrett, you keep throwing me these, these slam dunks here. So um, so here's what's interesting about what you what you what you what you framed out. Um, you know, if you look at the industries <clears throat> where it is socially acceptable to forego college and go straight to the pros, it's industries where um, they over-index for genius rather than excellence. Right? You don't have a surgeon going out of high school to to be a surgeon, but you have LeBron James or Kobe Bryant leave high school and go to the uh, MBA. And so what's interesting is there's this new opportunity and maybe your model is, is exploiting this, which is this idea that you are teaching for genius rather than teaching for excellence. And if you're teaching for excellence, then you need compliance officers that are gonna help students bring their variants into very tight kind of uh, parameters. You know, if, you, if you're running a school for uh, piano concerto, uh, you know, folks who are going to need to practice a lot or surgeons or any, anything where it's practice makes perfect. Absolutely. But if you're trying to run a school for entrepreneurs, i.e. we're going to have design tracks and engineering tracks and we need to be entrepreneurs, then that, that teaching for excellence model is, is almost irrelevant. And so this is a very fascinating idea. I'm wondering if you guys might riff off that a bit. I think teaching for excellence is kind of the wrong goal unless there's buy-in first. And that's one of the really tough things about the school system in general, which is you cannot force someone to become excellent in something. It's kind of impossible, right? And maybe you could threaten them. So Have you talked to Tiger Mom? Have you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe perhaps you can threaten them. And I'd say that is the de facto state of traditional education, right? They I call it the nuclear, the nuclear warhead of like motivation of like, we're going to fail you and you're going to, you know, be homeless if you don't do what I say like that. That's basically the implied threat of everyday in traditional school. Some schools are of course better, but uh, if you really boil it down, grades are threats, right? And so what we say is the very first thing we have to start with is getting buy-in. And how do you get buy-in? You just need to inspire kids. You need to give them that why, right? Um, 
So I don't know if I would call it genius. It'd be interesting to hear, Adam, your definition of genius versus excellence. But what we want to start with is let's, let's give them um, still the breadth you would expect in a high school experience, but let's way over index on creating these exciting expeditions, these, um, these inspiring you know, learning experiences. And in, in fact, something Wesley talks about often is there's a power in our expeditions versus traditional classes where usually in our expeditions, students leave with more uh, questions than they started with, or they are constantly pushing over the bell, right? That is not my experience at all. <laughs> all of our school. expeditions run late because of students um, staying around, asking more follow-up questions. and it, it's You'll see this, Ryan. Because if you inspire a student, like I was saying before, if you inspire a student in the modern era, the internet era, they're going to be able to challenge themselves sufficiently. All they need is that spark, right? So th this, is, this is awesome. You know, the, the idea that you know, in some ways, you guys are not progressive. You're, you're beyond progressive, which is, which is that the progressives were about the maximization of utility. Actually, I want to welcome you to the Libertarian Party, guys. Oh my you, God. You, you, are, you are no longer progressive. Oh, you're really oh, about, and when I say genius, you're really about maximizing. I have potential. to listen to this crap all the time, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're, you're, really, you're really about maximizing potential as opposed to maximizing utility. Utility is about excellence. Genius is about potential, and you guys have found a way to start with the why, and uh, that is why I love these guys. Welcome to the Libertarian Party, fellas. Well, I'll, I'll jump on the, before the PR people yell at us. Uh, we, will, we do not formally accept your invitation, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ryan, should we ask these guys about what they eat? Let's do it. So guys, we like to finish with a segment that we call the Furious Five, which is just going to be five questions completely unrelated to anything we've talked about this evening, just more of a get to know you type of segment. Uh, we encourage short rapid fire answers. Never done this with three guests before, but uh, I guess we'll just go Garrett, Indra, Wesley, because that's the order you are on my screen here. Um, first question of the Furious Five without any further ado, what's the best TV show or movie that you've watched recently? Got him thinking. Rapid fire. Oh, I hate I have to say this, but um, I, I recently watched Attack on Titan. I really do not watch much TV at all. And it, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> We've got Indra frustrated there. Indra, what's your answer? Currently watching a show uh, called uh, Manifest, um, which, is, uh, which is pretty fun. Basically, what happened to the uh, passengers of it's like a drama historical like sort of fiction basically of like what happened if the flight the malaysia flight that this the airline that disappeared like came back basically awesome i'm trying to come up with an edgy answer but i can't um i i actually started watching community recently which i feel like i've just missed that train completely but yeah it's been great <laughs> nice nice second question of the furious five what's the best meal you've eaten recently I'll give the meme answer that they want me to say so they can make fun of me. I love Soylent. It's delicious. <laughs> nice. You're unwelcome to the Libertarian Party. Wow. <laughs> I thought uh, recently, uh, which is not a very diverse set of experiences uh, for me, but I really like the pizza I had at Costco. Costco pizza. My 10-year-old would agree with that. Wesley, what you got? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be hard to... <laughs> Um, I made some really good pesto recently. I, I, I saw a dish on TikTok. Um, <laughs> are you a pesto fan? <laughs> I, 
it was, it was great. Yeah, it turned out great. really well. I'm gonna make it again tonight. <laughs> nice. It was. It had Noki in it too. So it was... Oh come on! How can you go wrong with Noki? Noki's delicious. Oh. Love it. Um, third question of the Furious Five: What's the best book that you've ever read? These are tough questions to do furiously, Ryan. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna mean. Go ahead. I read. I don't know if this is the best book, but the biggest book that had an impact on my life was this weird book called Abundance by Peter Diamandis. I read it at a really young age. I think I was in ninth grade, maybe. And that just completely shifted my zero-sum mindset that school taught me to this very positive-sum mindset. There you go. You got Adam excited about that one. Indra, how about you? Hmm. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm, never, I'm never really any good at answering the best sort of questions because they usually kind of change depending on my mood basically sure. but if you had to ask me at the right this moment i would say one of the most memorable books uh, that i've read uh, in my life was a book called unbroken basically the uh, sto- uh it's uh, i guess it's a technically a memoir if you will um but basically the story of a man who was a pilot in world war ii and was also a former olympian um and was ca- uh, was captured by the japanese and uh, lived as a pw for a uh, uh, quite some time and sort of his kind of horrific stories uh, during that whole process. It's always stuck out to me. Wow. Wesley, you've been over at the bookshelf. Collecting. <laughs> I've got a couple for you. So first against method. Um, so basically how the scientific method is reductive at times and a fun one house of leaves. I feel like only people on Reddit and um, basically educators understand this book, but it's about a, a film that, doesn't exist that a blind guy saw that he's reporting on and this kind of a narrative between like two different characters it's it's a ride um so (laughs) awesome as someone who spends uh an inordinate amount of time on reddit i appreciated that uh that prefacing of your answer there the fourth question of the furious five who's a thought leader that our listeners should stop what they're doing right now and go follow on social media or watch a TED talk by or read a book by, or who are the thought leaders that our listeners need to be paying attention to right this very second? Are we going to say edgy stuff? I'll say, I'll make Tara (laughs) proud and say, there's this guy named Zach Stein, Zachary Stein, who wrote a wild book, a really wild book about education. Um, And if you all like to be challenged, that that was a very interesting book. (laughs) He's actually off of social media on, on principle, I think so. It violates the second part of your question. That's all good. Yeah, well, I'm going to continue that thread of hard to find on social media. Uh, so, uh, and also acknowledging the recency bias here because we just had a conversation with the uh, with the guy, but Alec Resnick of uh, Powderhouse Studios um, is, I'd say, is he thinks about the problems uh, the right way in terms of uh, you know what uh, we should be thinking about when it comes to reimagining what schools could be. Awesome. I won't, I won't be edgy. I'll say like, we had a conversation recently with Gordon Bellamy um, about game design. And so he, he's also part of the Netflix series, um, uh, the, the gaming one, I forget the name of it. High Score is it called? I, yeah, High Score. Um, he's in, I think, episode four, but um, he's a really awesome high energy guy. Definitely recommend. That's fantastic. The fifth question of the Furious Five is one that we like to call the contrarian question, and it's really Adam's question. So at this point in the show, I always pass the microphone back to him. So Adam, take us away. You guys, uh, I'm, I'm so impressed with what you've built. And um, 
it's really interesting. I'm going to come at this a little bit differently. Um, you know, you, you all are in the school business, but you're also in the software business. And so what do you know about software as a service uh, and how it intersects with ed tech that other startups in the software space would disagree with you on? Oh, that software can't replace teachers. It's so common. I don't know why this is such a common thing. AI teachers are decades away. We need to empower our teachers. Stop trying to replace them. It's impossible for at least a long time. <laughs> Tremendous. Go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, this is a slightly tough question. Uh, yeah, I guess we're talking contrarian. So it's my personal opinion that a lot of software that, you know, frankly speaking, a lot of, uh, it, well, I'll say, you know, to save myself from the, uh, save myself from the lines that some startups and people, uh, you know, fall into this category where, you know, they claim to sort of, you know, improve schools and sort of change systems and, you know, help schools and so forth. Like, I don't think they actually do, like, they don't actually, like, or any change or improvement they make to the school is incremental at best, um, and that it's not actually helping too much of anything other than making like one little process slightly more efficient. And like one of the reasons why I was never particularly excited about like selling like education software to schools because knowing that if you don't change the systems, like it basically stays more or less the same. There's a fun rabbit hole to go down with like Sora and game design, like you know, from our systems that we're designing and the actual like player types, all of our students kind of fit into the four player types of game design. Like you can turn high school into a game in a lot of aspects. And so like looking at incentives, looking at, yeah, that, that's something that we're currently exploring. Um, so I will say just a, yeah, yeah. too interesting of a comment to, for it to be too furious, Ryan, sorry. Um, okay, no, it was fascinating. I wish we had a whole episode just on that comment. Yeah, seriously. I think too many people get caught in like this intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation. Like they believe they have to buy into one camp or the other, but the best tools and the best experiences are intelligent blends of both. So how can you make a game, which is extrinsic motivators and systems and incentives, uh, marry with the development of intrinsic motivation? Wow. Well, I think you guys just set us up very, very well to have you back on for a second episode on gamification of education and game design and all that stuff. Um, thank you guys so, so very much for coming on tonight. It's been so awesome to talk to you and hear more about your vision and your ideas. Uh, where can our listeners go online to find out more about SOAR schools or to get in contact with you? Well, if you're a, whether you're just a progressive education fan or you're a parent of a, of a potential uh, student that'd like to join our high school or a student yourself that might be interested in joining our high school, uh, you can learn more about Sora and all the cool things that we do at SoraSchools.com or at SoraSchools on most social media. That's awesome. Thank you guys again. It's been a blast. We'll do it again sometime and talk about gamification. But for now, we'll bid you adieu and wish you good night and, and just thank you so much. Thank y'all. That's a lot of fun. Thank good you. Good job, guys.